0: This podcast is brought to you by DanceScape. For the latest in dance, lifestyle, culture, and entertainment news, visit www.DanceScape.com. Dance is passion. Uh, we're online here with Mr. Mark Adler. Mr. Mark Adler is the composer of uh, Marilyn Hotchkiss's Ballroom Dancing and Charm School. Hello, Mark.
1: Hello, how are you?
0: Very good. Thanks very much. So first of all, just get to understand yourself and how you've approached this project. What is your background as a composer?
1: Well, uh, you know, I was classically trained um, as a pianist from from an early age. Studied piano from about the age of six or seven. Uh, was a notoriously a uh, poor piano student. What's <laughs> <So> I was always <laughs> more interested in making stuff up than reading what was on the page. Um, So it was only in my later uh, later teens that I, you know, began to sort of buckle down and really uh, get serious about reading music and that sort of thing. So I could kind of get the get the fundamentals that that you need to be a composer under my belt. Um, uh, At the same time, I was uh, studying classical piano. I also began to really get into jazz um, and rock and roll and and basically all all kinds of music. Very very open to many different kinds of. Uh, many different styles of music, but not so. Um, playing in bands in high school, um, and played in the jazz ensemble when I was in college, and which was a great experience, and, and obviously you know, gave me a good background for um, for working at that idiom. Uh, after spending a couple of years as a music major in college, I actually switched my major to film, um, which was something I was also very interested in. Ended up getting a degree in film. Uh, from UCLA, but right after I graduated, I started doing music again. So, um, and music have always been intertwined in my life, I guess.
0: So you've got a lot of different pieces of the puzzle that have led you to your career as a composer.
1: That's that's true, Um, and and even within uh, my career as a composer, a lot of different music experience to to kind of bring to the table. I had played in in jazz groups, I played in in rock bands, Um, I'd done... um, you know, my whole sort of classical study. Um, so all of that is kind of brought to bear, I guess, on, on what it is that I a great love of folk music also. And, and I see the folk tradition um, as being uh, essentially at the core of, of even classical music. The great classical composers often drew on folk melodies to use in their classical works. So,
0: Well, that's, that's interesting because I, I'm noticing in your work um, a lot of interest in world music, in um, the uh, the work with the indigenous uh, Brazilian music, and at play with the fields of the Lord. That's right. Yeah. How has your 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 love of, of world and more exotic forms informed your work in uh, more classical or- orchestral pieces, like you've used in this film?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think right off the bat, obviously it it expands the the palette of color. That are available to you as a composer, mm-hmm. you know, you, you begin to realize that you can, you know, use a gamelan or use uh, um, a Brazilian drum um, in, a, in a melody which is uh, maybe of kind of uh, Celtic origin. Um, so it's the idea of combining those things, and obviously I'm not the first person to do that, and I, I guess I'm very fortunate to have come, come of age at a time when, um, when a lot of people were exploring those ideas. Um, so uh, you know, I'm I'm one of them. I mean, I just I love. I guess I guess what it is is that I hear music as music, uh, not as uh, falling, you know, into some sort of category which can't be, um, you know, transcended. So um, it,
0: it doesn't need to be put into a box so much.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So so really, what ends up happening is that the. Um, you know, let me let me backpedal a little bit. I would say that 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 your work as a film composer has to do with with informing um, the emotional needs of the film. Um, so you're really playing to emotion, and and if you realize that that's what your mandate is, then whatever whatever you can bring uh, to the table in order to 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 address that is fair game. So uh, if if the color of a particular instrument from Asia does something emotionally at the same time that you're playing um, a Celtic melody uh, on, a, on a fiddle, then, then it's all going to work because it's not about what's stylistically quote-unquote correct. It's about what what moves the audience and moves the story forward and all that stuff. Right, well, what's evocative. Yeah, exactly.
0: Excellent. Um, tell me, uh, do you ever walk that line between if we're watching, if we're, if we're observing a very emotional scene in movie, and I'm, I'm hearing the instrument that I associate with, let's say, Asia, is that a concern that you start, this sound will bring me into a different headspace than you want to lead me to?
1: Well, yeah, it's always a concern. And, and it's funny because I was having a conversation at dinner last night with, with someone about this, about how subjective this all is and how two people can see the same film and walk away with completely different impressions. Mm-hmm. Um... both both of the film and of the score. I mean, to the point where someone will say, I loved all that ballroom dance music, but I didn't notice the score at all. And then you're thinking, well, then I guess it did its work kind of quietly in the background. Exactly. This person wasn't aware of it. But then I'll hear someone else say, you know, that score was all over the movie, and um, it just really distracted me. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how can that be? That person doesn't notice it at all, but obviously their ears were open. To the ballroom dance music because that was on the screen and someone else is distracted and, and it's you know it's a curious thing and, and I, I suppose for myself I always feel like I'm walking that line in a way um, because I, I'm the first audience for, for that score I'm the first person who who stands back and listens to it even before the director does and, and tries to assess am I being too intrusive am I being supportive am I being too subtle um, wh- where is that where is that spot and and I would say. More than finding the right tone, which of course is, is a job unto itself, it's extremely important. It's it's finding the proportion of that tone. How big should big be? How small should small be? Um, and and those are those are, are ongoing problems to be solved. I think for the for the film composer. Well, and that's, that's
0: fascinating because I'm I'm listening to the compositions, and um, I, I'm. I'm listening to exactly, as you've mentioned, how unobtrusive they are. A lot of them, of your composition, they're obviously designed as supporting pieces of music. Now, how much do you know about the scene that you are orchestrating when you go into your creative process?
1: Well, I've seen the film. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've seen the film from beginning to end uh, at, at least once, you know, sometimes multiple times, and then uh, when I do that, um, then I've sat down with the, with the director and we've spotted the film, which means we've looked at it and decided where music should be, mm-hmm. and we usually have some kind of basic discussion at least about what the tone should be and what the role of the music is in the film. Um, so you're all post-production? That's right, it's okay. all after. Yeah, although I have worked... I did not on this film, but I have worked uh, in in pre-production also. I I did um, this film, The Rat Pack, uh, for HBO a number of years ago, um, in which I actually did all the arrangements for um, what you see on camera, in terms of singing and all that stuff. So that had to be pre-recorded. And those discussions actually occurred before the shoot happened. But in the case of this one, I was brought on the project after Randy had already shot the ballroom dance material. And and, um, we we recreated a few things. which were which were in the track when I was hired to replace some things, and there was also a scene. I don't know if you already, have you seen the film. I have not. there, there is a there is a scene. And I'm not even sure if this cut on the CD, but there's a scene in the film where uh, one of the main characters actually gets up in his bereavement group and starts dancing with the leader of the bereavement group.
0: Okay.
1: And we're hearing music that's ostensibly in his in his head, um, and that was a, a, a kind of a big band piece that I wrote uh, to. Ev-
0: You, am I correct in saying that um, the process of selecting the the, da- the specific dancing pieces, you collaborated in that process as well?
1: No, that, that actually Randy had basically decided on by the time uh, I was brought on the project. It's funny, because composers are brought on at different stages. Right. And there are a lot of reasons why it happens, and, and not all of them are aesthetic. Some of them are like reasons,
0: you know? Sure, sure. Uh, a couple more questions in, in yeah. getting a sense of your background. Um, uh, as a as a composer and as a musician yourself, um, there's a reference made um, in your bio to influence by Michael Maltese. Oh. <laughs> I was I was fascinated because of course uh, Michael Maltese is a well-known um, writer for cartoons. That's right. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking here of the the vast orchestral presence and the very active musical presence in um, in cartoons and in, in using classic symphonic pieces. Why why did you select him as a great influence on you?
1: Well, you know, it, it, it was it was kind of a joke, but kind of not. I mean, sure. Essentially, I think what I, what I what I was referring to is that he was my favorite librettist. Okay. Um. So so when you know, my Michael Maltese had done is taken these classic uh, operatic pieces and, you know, the, the, the Barber of Seville, obviously, and, and uh, some of the the, the, the Wagner Ring um, stuff that inserted, you know, lyrics like, I killed the <laughs> you world know, What's amazing about that is that that, that reinvention of that operatic you know, repertoire, has become as indelible in a lot of people's minds. <laughs> as the actual original piece itself. Yeah, Absolutely. exactly. So, so, uh, so I love the fact that this guy was able to do that <laughs> with, with such brevity and in such kind of shorthand. Right. And, and there's also something about, um, you know, I, I, guess, I guess I was trying to tip my hat to someone who says, you know, music is wonderful course you know there is there is room for for, for lightness about it and, and um, it's an iconoclastic kind of move to make and I guess I guess in my core I have a very strong iconoclastic side to my personality so it was p- kind of paying homage to the to the yeah. iconoclast out there that was with, with Michael you know so
0: <laughs> <laughs> very good very good his um and, and, and looking at um, the film, of course, you can't quite do that intrusive with the music.
1: No, no. <laughs> and, and, you know, this was a much more... Uh, I think the thing about the score is it was a very internal kind of score. In other words, if the, if the dance music in the film represents a, a kind of exuberant external embracing of life and a way of reconnecting with with life that, that a lot of these characters... Um, Benefited from, from being able to do um, as a result of that. I think the score played much more internal stuff. You know, stuff mm-hmm. that you didn't see so much, but
0: but stuff that was it was psychological. Was the sense I got? Oh, yeah, psychological and emotional, maybe um, more uh, inwardly
1: emotional, I guess, rather than outwardly emotional. So it's the kind of it's the kind of stuff that's simmering inside the characters that, mm-hmm. that isn't externalized until they you really see them dancing. And um, so that was the role of the, of the score here. I mean, every score you know, that I've done has had a, a kind of a different problem to solve um, in terms of what it's doing, you know, with the picture and, and... I mean, that's one of the great joys of being a film composer is that, is that you get these different assignments which require you to draw on different parts of, of, of yourself in order to, to solve those problems, you know, so... Of course. Um, yeah,
0: speaking of um, drawing on yourself in different ways, did you yourself have any experience in ballroom dance at
1: all? Oh, no, no, I didn't. Um, although, um, you know, there's kind of a cliche about, you know, Musicians, you know, musicians can't dance. And, right. And it it's really funny because I had gone to uh, visit my brother who was attending a, a college a number of years ago, where there were there were uh, two conferences happening simultaneously. I'll never forget this. There was a conference of uh, of dancers, and there was a conference of musicians. Ah. <laughs> and and one could, could tell by looking around the hallways who was who the musicians and who were the dancers. The dancers had. Is, it's another way of talking about dance in a certain sense. So it's a kind of a, it's a it's a kind of a shadow dance in a way, you and, know.
0: And what I'm hearing is, um, hearkening back to a time when there was that specific conversation between a dancer and a musician on the floor, uh-huh. and there's that interaction that's that's still happening. It's, it's not as popular now, but it, we can still feel it through the music.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I and mean, I, I like that a lot. I, I like the I like that sort of idea that. Um, you know that, that that a dancer is uh, a dancer is a, is a musician and a musician is a dancer. They're just expressing that in a different way. In I think. Forbes. But I, I definitely sense the
0: connection. You know. Excellent. Um, I was wondering. Uh, I was fascinated listening to the soundtrack. And um, I know some of the pieces that, um, that you conducted, some of the classical ballroom pieces that you conducted, were not from the typical canon of ballroom dancing, in the sense that there wasn't, you know, in the mood was the swing piece, that sort of thing. They were pieces that were more on the fringes.
1: Um, yeah, well, these were selections that were really made by Randy, and, right? and, and I guess the music supervisor must have been involved with them also, John McHugh. Um, and as I said, I can't speak to those selections, because I wasn't involved in you know, we, as I said, we re-recorded those. literally what they're moving to, but it becomes like a third, This kind of like a third level of stuff. It Is starts what, functioning in a think? way that's not literal source music, it's something else going on. And I think, you know, I don't know how intentional this was on Randy's part, I, I can't say, but I, I do know that the guy has really good instincts. And, and I'll tell you where I first saw something like this happen, um, was in the movie, I shouldn't be talking about another movie, but I'm a big fan, okay, of Fosse, uh, who was, uh, is on Broadway, Uh, the dancers are auditioning, it's a big audition sequence, they're obviously not dancing to on Broadway. you know. They're going one, two, three, one two three. It's a four four piece and yet somehow it all just kinda works.
0: Well and, and what I'm hearing you describe is that the music is not functional, it's purely an evocative
1: Well yeah, yeah. It, 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 exactly. That's exactly right. I mean I mean if you if you weren't if you weren't uh, you know, musically and, 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 and dancer dancerly literate, you you might not even notice that, that was happening. Right. Um and, and if you didn't notice it was happening, it was because the level at which it was functioning was was emotionally correct. Okay. Uh, and brought you to a place that, that made sense emotionally in the film. So, yeah.
0: So purely as a practical point, in the production, when the performers are dancing to music, mm-hmm. what were they dancing to? Yeah, I, you know, as I said, I wasn't on the set, but I did hear some stories. And I, I'm,
1: not, I'm not sure what they were dancing to, but it wasn't necessarily what you were hearing finally on the
0: track. What is your sense of the popular response to the film? Well,
1: audiences seem to be very, very responsive to it. Um, you know, my mother-in-law saw the opening uh, the other weekend, and she called us, and she said, everybody applauded at the end of the of the film. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was at the screening, the premiere screening at Sundance, which was not, not this year, but it was uh, 2005, and uh, there was a spontaneous standing ovation at the end of the movie. So yeah. that was really, really gratifying. You, you know, I was wearing a Marilyn Hotchkiss hat walking down the street at Sundance, and somebody yelled out, it's the best thing I've the festival, the and I'll buy the soundtrack, you know, so... <laughs> That's, that's, been, that's been really, really gratifying just to see the audiences' response to
0: it, you know. Um, I'm, I'm going to draw on your desire to speculate here. Um, to what would you attribute the current rise in interest in ballroom dancing, in film and in music and in practice?
1: Well, you know, it's got to be... I think it's got to be a combination of things, doesn't it? It's got to be the fact that as a social activity, there are very... I mean, there's a, a wonderful scene in the movie where uh, one of the main characters gets kicked out of the glass. This is kind of a spoiler. I won't tell you who it is. And he's really nervous, and, he's, and he kind of comes off like this really cocky guy, you know, and you sort of peg him as being like a real kind of uh, bar-cruising, singles-type guy. But he says, I love dancing. And he says, he says what, what am I supposed to do? Go to clubs? I hate clubs! Huh. And suddenly, You realize that, you know, they're with other people socially. because it's like, who's going to mine the stuff that's created today? You know, we're not making any new stuff. So just the, the, the celebration of, of, of melody and music, which you have in ballroom dancing, of course, is a great thing. And I think that it's, there's a hunger for that, you know. Mm. I'm kind of a tuned, I'm of a melody guy in a way. So, you know, I, 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 I respond to that a lot.
0: How did, how did you feel having a chance to um, sit and really orchestrate some music? Some uh, pieces from the '30s again. I mean, there's a, there's a fantastic period feel to the sounds that you've managed to create. How did you approach that? Well, well, actually, uh, the orchestrations on the on the on the redos, uh,
1: were done by an associate of mine, John Idesbog, who basically had listened to the um, to the original versions done some great library research, found some charts which were, which were very close, and then kind of refined them a little bit.
0: Sorry, what, what do you mean by charts? Uh, you, know, you know, sheet music,
1: actually. Okay. There are were, there were, there were arrangements floating around out there that are very close to those classic arrangements. And then um, I brought John in to kind of, you know, listen to what was on the track and make sure that uh, what he had on the, on the page, the uh, stuff that he researched, was really, really close. And then we just got these great LA players together who are um, just amazing jazz players. And usually in the first few takes, they would just nail the stuff. Um, and, you know, my job was just to make sure that the cut-offs happened properly and the balance was basically right and, you know, the, the feel was there. But they, you know, they didn't need too much direction as far as that goes. It was really, it was really like finding the right people to do it and then just letting them loose, you know.
0: Did you find the, the musicians enjoyed the chance to approach this kind of material?
1: I think so. It was a little bit like falling off a log, you know,
0: <laughs> in some
1: ways. Excellent.
0: What was, um... Looking back on your work, specifically on the piece, what what are you most proud
1: of? There's a scene in which um, Marion Hotchkiss, who's Marilyn Hotchkiss's daughter, um, is, uh, is making a speech about about how dance is a very powerful drug, hmm. and as she makes this speech, uh, Frank Keene, who's kind of our lead character, uh, begins to get kind of an epiphany about what dance might mean in his life. Uh, and I basically underscored her speech hmm. uh, and his growing understanding of what this is. So it's not a piece, it's not a big sweeping piece that, um, that plays on its own. It's supportive, but, um, but it complements the dialogue in a way. You, know, you might even say it's partnered with the dialogue in a kind of a dance that, that I was really proud of. Because um, it's, not, it's not a kind of writing that you hear a lot of these days um and there aren't a lot of opportunities to do it and you want to do it in a way that doesn't call attention to what's going on but is a real a real marriage between what the what the actor is speaking and what the music is doing and i felt that that turned out pretty nicely and, and it's actually on the record but obviously without the dialogue the cut is called um let's see what i have in front of me the cut is joyous shades of brilliant magenta
0: experience that I'm familiar with at the movies is watching a speech and and being very moved by it without exactly knowing why and you're sort of drawing attention to the fact that the music is doing that but it's not calling attention to itself
1: yeah, yeah. and what's interesting too is that that right after she makes this speech which she does in very sort of hushed tones. She yells at, again at the top of her voice for the guy who's operating the, the, the CD player to suddenly start playing some music back and, and she just sort of yells. So the music has the opportunity to go from being really quiet to kind of blossoming out because now her voice is getting louder. Um, so um, that's why I say they sort of work in tandem in an interesting way. Um, interesting.
0: Very good. Well I just wanted to um, uh, finish up with a few questions here for yourself. Um, these questions are drawn from the same ones that are asked by um, Mr. Lipton and in the actor inside the actor studio. Uh-huh. Uh Just some questions to get a sense about um, a larger global sense about how you how you are yourself as an artist and as a person. So there's a list of ten questions. Okay. Uh, I'm going to begin with what is your favorite word? My favorite
1: word. Oh. <laughs> it's something I've never thought about. My favorite word. You know, it popped into my head. What's and that? Really funny. What popped into my head is, is the word can't. And, Excellent. Yeah, and I, and I, and I started to think, well, why would that pop into my head? And I think it's because if somebody says can't to me, uh, my response is usually, oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's just see about that. So, um, yeah, you know, it's just a completely spontaneous response. But yeah, I, mean, I, I suppose that's what it is. Because it, at that point, I become really energized. You know. Well, what is your least favorite word? Oh, well, what would it be, Cam? I don't know. Uh, <laughs>
0: What turns you on creatively, spiritually, and emotionally? Um,
1: well, something that I identify as, as an opportunity, um, you know, as a, as a film composer, which is basically what I spent the last 14 years doing pretty much exclusively. Um, I'm a collaborator, and and my job is to bring something to the table. So. I suppose what what turns me on most would be would be seeing the seeing the lack of a puzzle piece that I can provide um, to complete the picture uh, in a film. You know, understanding that 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 this film is really wonderful, but there's something missing, and and I know that I can provide that and push it over the top. Um, I'll give you a funny example. Uh, I scored a TV movie recently where I sat down and watched it without any tech music at all. And I probably cried three times watching it. <laughs> and it was one of the most difficult jobs I ever had because I didn't think it needed any music. And I was, was hired to write the music for it. And I couldn't imagine what I was gonna bring to the table. And it was, you know, it was not it was not a great experience from from, from early on. But, you know, if you're watching one where you're going, you know, this is really nice, but God, I know I can do this. That that really excites me, I think.
0: And what what turns you off?
1: Well, I guess it would be where, um, a couple of things would be, I mean, one obviously where, where I do something where I don't really feel that what I'm doing is contributing that much um, or, or what I'm contributing is superfluous or every now and then and every composer is, is seen this. I've done a lot of documentaries, so you particularly hear documentaries, things like, well, you know, the sound is really bad here, so we need some music to help the sound out. And I'm going, oh, yeah, really? <laughs> so that's kind of a turnoff. it's one of the utilitarian things you have to do. Um, I think the other thing that turns me off is when, um, when I feel like the needs of the film, and this probably involves a certain amount of arrogance on my part, but I think you need a certain amount of that. When the needs of the film have been misidentified and you're being encouraged to do something which you don't really feel is best for the film, but because you're a collaborator, you essentially kind of need to do that eventually, or you, or you try to find a way of of doing it and still bringing what you feel needs to be brought to the table, and that's that can be very um, disheartening and, and, and make the process very very tricky. Okay. Yeah.
0: What what sound or noise do you love? Um. It's a complex question for you. I understand.
1: Yeah. Um. Well. It's kind of it's a, a two part question. It's a two part answer, I suppose. Um, I love the sound of percussion, like a complex percussion sound. Um, and it's funny because I was reading, oh, it was somebody's treatise on orchestration. I can't remember. It was some old nineteenth century treatise on orchestration, and they were talking about uh, they were talking about percussion percussive sounds as generally being less musical. But then they identified a sound that, that had to be. True to the period that they were living in, which was the 19th century, and they said if you listen, if you're in a, if you're in a, uh, if you're in a courtyard, a stone courtyard, and there are a bunch of soldiers, like maybe you know 50 soldiers, and they all put their rifles down at the same time, there's a rhythm that happens with the sort of you know lack of synchronization of them all hitting exactly, kind of a group sound Mm -hmm. that is that is a really wonderful, wonderful sound. So this was even back in the 19th century, they were looking at percussion and saying, well, you know, it is possible for there to be real musicality in percussion. Um, but the other half of that answer comes from um, rimsky korsakovs book on orchestration, where he says, you know, the beginning orchestrator puts all of their, um, you know, puts all of the value in percussion to begin with, and then they put it in the woodwinds, and then they put it in the brass, but finally when they evolve to the highest point, it's in the strings. And I think that, I think that that's absolutely true. Um, you know, Bernard Herrmann has this wonderful score, Psycho, which is all done with the string group. There's no percussion, there's no wings. It's, all it is is strings. And he was such a you know great composer, and he did his own orchestrations, that he managed to evoke a huge range of emotion and, and musical color from just the string group. So, yeah, so I love the strings. Um, and in fact, the, the violinist who played a lot of the solos, and now uh, when Hotchkiss is a guy i collaborated with on a number of projects, and. He has this uncanny ability to, to get a, a universe of sounds out of his violin, and what's great about working with him is he loves exploring, you know, placing the bow different parts of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the string close to the bridge, farther from the bridge, using the edge of the bow. And um, I hired him once to, to do something um, for a documentary on John Brown, the abolitionist, uh, and it was a very violent scene and when we were finished recording and I played it back and I swear it sounded like Jimi Hendrix getting feedback out of an electric guitar. Huh. Uh, and it was all the overtones he was able to get out of this out of his violin. So yeah, that's that's probably it. That's that's a universe of, of, of sound to explore, you know, and of strings I think.
0: What what sound or noise do you hate?
1: Oh, you know, nails on the blackboard, huh? Anything that's, anything that's too loud in one narrow frequency, I would say the simpler the sound, the less complex the sound is, the l- loud, simple sound is horrendous. <laughs> loud and
0: simple. Very good. Yeah. What, what profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? Well, funny, because I was sitting, sitting next to a neurologist last night at
1: dinner and I was saying, you know, science is one of the, is one of the roads not taken for me. We got into a big discussion about science and scientific method. Um, you know, research science, particularly in the biological sciences, something I've always been really fascinated with. Um, I've also been a real amateur student of physics, not on the mathematical level, but more on the sort of the, the, theoretical, philosophical level. So those, those two areas are really, really fascinating to me. And what profession would you not like to do? Oh, I would say anything that involves repetitive work with um, very little creative latitude. You know, balancing my checkbook is a good example. I don't like doing that, so any any sort of profession that might echo that kind of activity would be one I would not be drawn to.
0: And my last question: If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates?
1: Um, He got it almost (laughs) right. terms of what you did with your, yeah, you got, you got you got pretty close to doing it in the right way. I'd probably like to hear some, I'd like to hear some, some validation like that. I, I certainly wouldn't expect to hear that I did it right, because I sure don't feel like I, I am. But, you know, I like the idea that I'm sort of moving in the right direction with how to live a good life, you know. Some validation that the that the process was at least in the right direction rather than the wrong direction. That'd be, that'd be a good thing to hear. Very good. On behalf of Danscape,
0: I'd like to thank you for an excellent interview and appreciate your time very much.
1: Thank you. I think you're an excellent interviewer. (laughs) Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Danscape.
0: For full transcripts, register for Danscape E-Zine at
1: www.danscape.com. Dance is passion.